coming up on Life is a Festival. We were very inspired by and influenced by this idea of transformational festival. And so becoming a student of transformation was part of the journey for us. And so looking at theories about expansion of consciousness, looking at theories of developmental psychology, you mentioned Alan Watts, like it's a huge influencer for some of us. And the domain of transpersonal psychology and the hero's journey, these are all pieces and parts of what has gone into our cultivation of a container that is supportive of transformation is first being students of what that process looks like at a psychological and philosophical process and then integrating that into our storytelling. My name is Eamon Armstrong and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Welcome back, my fellow travelers. And boy, do I have a dreamy little episode for you today. Do you lucid dream? You know what I'm talking about, like where you awaken in the dream and you suddenly realize you can control the environment. Do you fly? Make love? Maybe just let the dream play out and observe it? Has it ever occurred to you to maybe make a festival? Well, today's guest... Jonah Gabriel Haas, is the marketing director and co-founder of Lucidity Festival, a beautiful transformational gathering which occurs outside of Santa Barbara at the Live Oak Campground each spring. And it is returning after a two-year hiatus on April 8th. On the show, we discuss lucid dreaming and some techniques for bringing the practice into your own life. We go over the origin story of Lucidity Festival and the seven core values of the event. Then we get pretty heady about transformation. And this was a really interesting conversation for me considering this podcast. Now that festivals have returned, we're back in the business of transformation. So what does that even mean? And Jonah has a very interesting perspective. We talk about transformation in terms of trilogies and cycles and seasons. We discuss a four-stage model of evolving conscious awareness and how that fits in with Lucidity's 12 chapters as an event. They are on chapter nine at the moment. We end our conversation with a reveal of the Lucid Multiverse NFT adventure whose mint drops right as this podcast is published. So if you are an avid NFT collector, you may want to head over there at the end of the show and acquire your own. So Lucidity Festival lands in the Live Oak Campground outside of Santa Barbara on April 8th. And this will be the ninth iteration of the event. Jonah is the co-founder and marketing director, and he has been designing experiences for over 10 years. He is an avid lucid dreamer. He has a master's degree in cultural anthropology, and he loves otters. 
and he's a lovely man, and it was wonderful to reconnect with him to do this show today. So without further ado, here is Jonah. I used to do this a lot on the show, this like what would be a big win, what would be like a home run, or like what would you most like the listeners to experience? And then Marion from Burning Man made fun of me about it. She's like, that's a horrible question. It creates too much expectation, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, okay, and I didn't do it anymore. But in this case, I actually, you are a festival producer that is, and I'm sure you have a groovier name than that for yourself, but you are a festival producer in, in the sort of general sense, bringing a festival back after two years. And so this podcast is an interesting opportunity to speak to both your existing community and also people within the broader festival community who may wish to attend Lucidity. So considering that, do you have any particular goals today in terms of what you'd love our listeners to come away with? Sure, and I just want to say that I like the question because I think when you step into a container and you set an intention for it, that's a, a powerful ritualistic thing to do. And sometimes we don't get things that we don't ask for, and sometimes you got to dream it first before you do it. So I like the question. And a big win would be, I think, if we could really like have a deep and juicy conversation about the mythos behind Lucidity Festival and the greater meta-narrative that we're telling with our 12-year story and how that speaks to people at archetypal levels, how that is integrated in everything else that we do because we do a bunch of things other than produce our festival. We've got a bunch of different projects. And so how is it sort of all integrated how does it satisfy the objective of transformation and what does that look like? I think that's probably the agenda that you had also. So <laughs> I have most of that actually written down in my roadmap um, for today. So that's not even foreshadowing. That's just basic like outlining. <laughs> like you bet I don't even have to do any work now. Well, good. We're on the same page. We're on the same page. Yeah. I love the kind of like mythopoetic lens. And I think that especially right now, it's really important to be able to harness myth and archetype metaphorically while keeping one foot firmly in reality. And I think part of what ends up happening in the psychedelic communities, in various psychedelic communities, and I've done a lot of work on this on my show, is that it's possible to be too far in the shamanic the mythic, the archetypal, and kind of like forget to tie your camel, so to speak. And so I've been in a very skeptical mind for a while because of some of the externalities of the COVID pandemic, but I'm ready to step back in the mythic. So it's your timing is just perfect for me personally because I'm like, let's do mythic. Beautiful. Let's do hero's journey. Let's do integrated psychology. Let's do some Jungian stuff. I think that the life is a festival. Fellow travelers are also hungry for the optimism of the mythic perspective as well. So the timing is perfect. And with Beautiful. that preamble, Jonah, welcome to Life is a Festival. It's been a long time we've known each other and I have desired to have you on the show for a long time. And I am so grateful you ambled all the way up to my home in San Francisco for this conversation. So uh, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you here. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. That came, I think, prior to COVID. And with our festival coming up and some big irons in the fire with some new projects, it felt like a good time to come up here and get on the mic and talk about some things. So I really appreciate the invitation and it's uh, a pleasure to be in your home among all of your masks from around the world. Yeah, I, I collect woodwork masks. Maybe I should do a show about masks. One of the things I like in festival culture is avatarism. So I don't perform characters at festivals, but sometimes I will step into an avatar whereby with a particular dress, for me, accents too, because I was into acting growing up, stepping into an avatar is a way of exploring aspects of yourself and, and giving yourself permission and freedom to do certain things. And I find like masks are beautiful for that as a symbol of that. Although, although I never wear a mask at a festival. The reason being is no one wants to talk to a mask. You can perform, but you are more art than human when you are in a mask. And I like to be really connected, so I don't really wear masks at festivals. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if you go to a festival with the intention of connecting, the mask puts space in between the space between the face and sometimes you need the face and definitely the eyes to have that depth of connection. But if you have other objectives at the festival, that might be more of an exploration of your avatarism or an exploration of a particular archetype, then wearing the mask might be a fun exercise. I had an awesome experience at Burning Man uh, one year. We were talking before we turned the mics on about mask work and overcoming fears when I was younger, the wolf was like my biggest fear. And it was mostly from the never-ending story, that wolf in the never-ending story, but also from the big bad wolf from the three little pigs when I was really little. And for whatever reason, that showed up in all of my nightmares, this dark wolf that was trying to eat me. And that fear in my nightmare space continued into my 20s. And there was one year that I decided that I was going to confront it. And I, this wolf mask magically came to me and at Burning Man under a full moon I wore the wolf mask and I went out at night howling at the moon stalking predators jumping up behind people and scaring them like it, I was just like fully in the wolf and that experience as silly as it sounds was super liberating for me. And then I had another dream experience where I like, there was a white wolf and I stalked it and I killed it. It basically gave itself to me. And I said, thank you and looked in its eyes. And from that point forward, those two experiences, the wolf never showed up as a nightmare image again. It always showed up as an ally. So mask work, I think, can be really powerful. It all depends on your intention. Oh, I love that. And I also love that you've put us right in the space of dreaming out the gate, which, of course, a festival called Lucidity, obviously we're going to speak a bit about dreaming. Have dreams always been an impactful aspect of your life? You were just mentioning you have this, had this wolf nightmare turned into this white wolf dream. Have you always been associated with dreams? And do you lucid dream? Yes. The answer to both of those questions is yes. From a young age, both my mother and my father talk to me about dreams. My mom and my dad separated when I was one, and so I grew up with them in different households. But my dad was reading the Carlos Castaneda books and talking to me about dreams. And then on the other side, my mom was working with 
uh, a guy named Stephen Larson, who is a transpersonal psychologist, and she was doing some ghostwriting for him. And so she was totally connected to dreams also. And so the influence of both of my parents talking to me about dreams from a very young age had it sort of always there present as a natural part of life is to pay attention to your dreams and to talk about them. And then my father was the one who was really interested in lucid dreaming. And he taught me about the reality test of looking at your hands. And so I remember my first lucid dream at like probably seven or eight years old. And then it was around 19 that I really embraced lucid dreaming as a practice. I started keeping dream journals and read a lot of books and maybe... 16 years ago, I started teaching lucid dream workshops. I went to a lucid dream workshop and then was like the star student and ended up stepping into a facilitation role and did like six rounds of lucid dream workshops. And then, yeah, a few years later, <laughs> got with a group of artists on a Burning Man art installation and we decided that we wanted to build a festival and lucidity was the concept that came forth. So yeah, lucidity and lucid dreaming have always been there for me. Wow. It's it's such an interesting timing. I was just in Guatemala and I met someone who was teaching lucid dreaming workshops. And also a couple months ago, I had Nick Mulvey on the podcast. Do you know him, English folk singer? His music, so. I'm sure, has, has graced your Spotify at some point. He, he pops up all over the place. Extremely talented artist. And he was exploring Celtic indigeneity. Mm. And there's an ancient dreaming school on the island of Mona, you know, in the British Isles. So I've been thinking about lucid dreaming. When I was a little kid, I, I naturally had a lot of lucid dreaming. And so when I was little, I would always fly. I'd be like, oh, I'm dreaming, I'll fly. As soon as I hit puberty which I think is very common for lucid dreamers, I no longer flew and I would have sex with someone. <laughs> yep. I'd be like, I'm, in, I'm dreaming, oh, I'm going to find someone to sleep with. And then somehow, and it was around when I first started smoking pot and trying to be cool and, and drinking and doing like that moment in my life, the lucid dreams disappeared. And I have not had a lucid dream in any real sense since. And I actually don't even remember my dreams so much now. Mm. I'm actually starting to dream a bit more. So maybe the first thing we can do on this podcast, which is, and I promise, dear listeners, that we will talk all about festival culture. But first, you are a lucid dream instructor. Tell me how I can cultivate lucid dreaming in my life. Sure. Well, one of the things that I heard is that right around the time that you started smoking pot, the dreams started to go away. And that's definitely like a neurochemistry thing, which is like the cannabinoids occupy the same receptors that your dreaming imagination need. And so if the cannabinoids are in there, then it's inhibiting your dream experiences. So for people who smoke a lot of pot and they want to have a greater connection to their dreams, see what happens when you take pot out of the equation. If you want to, beyond that, bring dreaming back into your experience and your reality, the number one thing that I tell people to do is to keep a dream journal. And keep your dream journal next to your bed. Write first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. Do you have to write or can you like record voice notes? You is can record better? voice notes, but honestly, I think that there's something about the kinesiology of actually writing that helps you 
transcribe the dream into your long-term memory in a way that just speaking it doesn't do. Because you've had the experience where you, you wake up and you remember your dreams while you're in bed, but then as soon as you like roll over and get out of bed, you forget them. Mm, exactly. This morning. Our dreams are stored in our short-term memory, and if we don't do something to turn it into long-term memory, then it disappears really quickly. And so writing your dreams down, I prefer it as a method. If people are going to do voice recording, I recommend do the voice recording to capture things. Maybe in the middle of the night, you don't want to like turn the light on, whatever. That's cool. Do the voice recording. But then come back to that recording and maybe take some notes or write it out into a journal. Especially when you're just starting to like beef up your practice. Keeping the journal is, is really the, the number one thing. And you also talked about the hand test, which I've heard of before. Can you tell me about the hand test and, and some of the other techniques of like, am I dreaming? Sure. And probably if we're going to have this conversation, we should rewind just a little bit and define lucid dreaming, right? So lucid dreaming, I define anyway as becoming aware of the dream as a dream while you're still in the dream. And then you get to control it and do cool things like flying. Right. So a lot of people are like, oh, lucid dreaming is all about dream control. And that is something that you can choose to do in your lucid dream. But it's not an integral part of the definition, I would say. Because you can have a lucid dream and be aware of the fact that you're dreaming while you're in the dream. But you can choose to let the dream still unfold and play out the way that it would without you injecting your decisions and control into the space. And sometimes that's an even more powerful way to go about experiencing the dream just as a witness. So okay, there's there's like a philosophical piece here. You know, sure. you know the the Alan Watts waking dream bit where he's like life implies death and death implies like that speech that's in every shamanic house song. <laughs> if you are God having the dream of life and you become aware that you are what does it mean not to try to manifest? You know, like what does it mean if you become aware that you are the divine? What does it mean to still just let it play out exactly as it does? There's a fun philosophical piece there. Yeah, for sure. And when you do that, you learn that your dreams and the dream space has an intelligence of its own and has a direction of its own. And so to surrender to the river flow of the dream, a lot of times when you do that, you're able to get to what what the gem that that dream has for you. I've had some lucid dreams where I am sort of like fervently attempting to experiment with things. And I start looking around and looking for like, where's the treasure? And I'm opening up drawers and looking under things and and I'm not finding anything. And I end up waking up like, the heck was that dream even about like there was no there was no nothing there and the entire time in the dream i was trying to do cool stuff because i was lucid and no cool stuff happened and so i think that giving the dream the benefit of the doubt and allowing it to unfold the way it wants to can be a really powerful practice within lucid dreaming. And it's not the the shiny thing that people want to talk about when we talk about lucid dreaming because people want to talk about, oh, I became lucid and I flew or, oh, I became lucid and I could like walk through walls or like use my telekinesis power to like 
destroy enemies or whatever. I think it's a very natural thing for people to experiment in that space. And it's a space that you definitely don't want to obsess over because there can be, and this is going to go down all sorts of different rabbit holes if we let it, and we should probably come back to festivals at some point, but there can be dangers in being super open with your vessel in the lucid dream space. If you are more in like an out-of-body space and an, an astral space, and if you believe that there are other astral entities on other dimensions of non-physical reality, some of which don't have benevolent intentions, then you do want to be careful about how you open your dream vessel. Ooh, that is a deep, deep rabbit hole of astral projection. I think. I think what we'll do today is let's we'll let's wrap the lucid dreaming moment by by the techniques because I think I'm still at a basic level and and not necessarily needing to be primarily concerned of the the dark deities who may exist in that plane. They're probably getting at me anyway in my unconscious dreams, but I would like to become lucid and then and become lucid throughout the story of lucidity as well. So. Just to kind of close this moment of lucid dreaming, techniques. So the dream journal is really important. Right. Not smoking too much weed. Right. Let's get back to the reality test, right? The reality test of looking at your hands. So I'm pretty sure that this first came from Carlos Castaneda because my dad was telling me about this when I was a kid and he was reading the Castaneda books and I'm pretty sure that this technique comes from him. So... If you look at your hands and you ask the question, am I dreaming? And if you front load that in your waking life and you you do that regularly and you almost habituate it, like do it 10, 20 times a day. What is it like to walk around in your waking life and look at your hands and ask the question, am I dreaming? The reason why you habituate it or front load it is to hopefully create that experience in your dream state. And when you are in your dream state and you look at your hands and you ask the question, am I dreaming? There's a really cool thing that happens. And that is that you can't focus on your hand as a five-fingered hand. Like you'll have three fingers and then you'll have eight fingers or then it gets all blurry. I've looked at my hands in my dreams before and they were lobster claws. Like your hands don't stay your hands when you look at them in your dreams. And so if you see that, then you can say, aha, yes, this is a dream. And that's the moment of lucidity. That's the moment of recognizing the dream as a dream while you're in the dream. And so from that point, a whole bunch of other stuff can happen, right? You can adventure, you can fly, you can you can surrender to the dream as we were talking earlier. But Getting to that point of recognizing the dream as a dream within the dream, that's the, that's the goal of lucid dreaming. And if you don't have a reality test, you might come up with the question, I wonder if I'm dreaming right now? Like, I definitely have had dreams where I'm like, this feels like a dream. I wonder if I'm dreaming. And I convince myself that I'm not dreaming, that it's real, because I don't actually test reality. Another reality test that you can do is try to put your finger through a, a solid wall. In your dream, you can totally just like stick your finger through it. If you don't have a wall around, try sticking your finger through the palm of your other hand. And if obviously if it goes through, you know that you're dreaming. Now, with reality tests, you want to have a test that is 
relatively safe and benign. Like you don't want to jump off a cliff to see if you can fly as your reality test because you do that in your waking life, it's not going to go well. So Stephen LaBerge of the Lucidity Institute at Stanford, he talks about uh, text rereading. So if you read text in your dreams and then you look away and then you look back at the text, if it's changed, you're dreaming. Similar with clock faces. Like if you read the time on a clock, look away, look back, the time is different or it gets all blurry. That's another reality test indicator that you're dreaming. And so, yeah, those are a handful of reality tests. It's kind of like the next step. And then there's like, there are techniques for maintaining your lucidity. So once you become aware of the dream as a dream within the dream, a lot of times what happens is people get super excited and wake themselves up. And mm. So they don't get to go on that sort of a, the next step of the journey or the, the, the lucid portion of the lucid dream. And so I recommend that people just stay calm. It's the emotional spike of excitement that wakes them up. So recognize that if you become aware of your dream while you're in the dream, that's what's supposed to happen. And you just sort of like stay calm about it, you know? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to practice my lucid dreaming and I will if I if it starts to take hold, I'll make some note of it at a future podcast. So for those for those listeners who tend to follow along life is a festival, I'll report back how it's going. Excellent. Now let's zoom back to about 10 years ago. You're a burning man with a group of friends. You have a lucid moment where you decide that you want to create a festival. At that moment, did you have a specific why? Was it a matter of like, Burning Man's awesome, let's make our own version of this, let's see what happens? Or was it as sophisticated in terms of like a narrative arc as Lucidity came to become? It was definitely not as sophisticated as the narrative arc that Lucidity became. The sort of progression did start with a dream. There's an arts collaborative in Santa Barbara called Fishbone. And Christmas of 2010, we did a street fair Fishmas Bazaar around Christmas time. And we made these colorful abstract plywood trees and had like a zany used car salesman lot for abstract Christmas trees and tried to get people to buy the artful Christmas trees instead of cutting down Christmas trees. And it was all like immersive performance art. And But the trees were beautiful and colorful. And I went home that year and I had a dream that me and all my friends were frolicking through an entire forest of these abstract trees at Burning Man. And so the next morning I called some of the Fishbone collaborators and I said, hey, I just had this dream. We could totally make a few hundred of those trees, right, and bring them to Burning Man, and that would be pretty dope. And so thus was born Walkabout Woods, which was a Burning Man art installation that we brought in 2011. But all of 2011, we were building this installation, and there were probably like 80 Santa Barbara artists that came into the collaborative stew to paint on trees and cut out trees. And we built a 20-foot climbable pyramid that was hidden in the forest and uh, a bunch of other interactive 
pieces of the boiler room, um, <clears throat> which were basically like fun interactive stations that people could stumble upon in the woods. And uh, we brought it to Lightning in a Bottle. We brought it to Burning Man. We brought it to an Insomniac event after Burning Man. And it was in the process of like bringing this installation on tour to different festivals that we realized that Santa Barbara has a lot of really cool people doing a lot of really cool things. And we could totally produce a festival. And so there were two people in the group who they were like all about it. And one of them wrote a business plan. The other one started like making all the connections with county officials and that sort of thing. And then three others of us got involved and we just went for it in 2012. The time when we decided that we were actually going to go for it in April, it was like it was mid January. And usually now we start our production cycle in like late July, August at the latest, September or October. But that first year, it was just like, let's go for it. And we only had three months, and we produced the first Lucidity, and then we've been doing it ever since, minus the last two years because of COVID. Yeah, and we'll talk about what minus the last two years really means for a festival, because I think a lot of festivals were either attempting to do something online, doing other kinds of events, or really building and reimagining what their offering is. But first... I'd like to talk a bit about what makes Lucidity different than other festivals through the lens of what the value of a festival is. So I'm a big fan of this idea that festivals, you know, they're annual iterative events, they're in a discrete time and place, but they also build community and they can be these kind of transformative incubators for people. Often people who are just going to have a good time find that they feel different on the other side. A uh, big part of this podcast, of course, is how do you bring that more and more into your life. So from that perspective, the perspective of, of transformation, what are you most proud of in the way that lucidity sits differently mm. in that landscape? Yeah. I think there's a bunch of different ways to answer that question. But the thing that rises to the surface for me is <clears throat> it's our core values that everything that we do is based on. Are they written down like a 10 principles kind of vibe? Yeah. We have seven core values, and I can run through them in, Let's in do a them. second. Yeah. But I first want to talk about how we came to know these core values. So after we decided that we want to produce a festival together as a community, but before we knew what the name was, so it wasn't even called Lucidity yet, we gathered our community together, the people who were artists and people in the food community and people in the healing community. And <clears throat> we got together and we posed two questions. The first question was, what are the values that we want to create around? And the second one was, what is that going to look like? And so that first question, what are the values that we want to create around? Everybody had sticky notes and wrote down the values that they wanted to create around. We had probably like 15, 20 people. And we put them up on the wall. And there were probably like a hundred different sticky tabs on this wall by the end of this process. We let the popcorn pop until it was like done popping. And then we said, all right, now we're going to pile sort these. And so we put like values with like values and we organized them into piles. And the piles 
turned into about seven piles. And then we said, what are these piles? Like, what's the unifying principle of these piles? Thus was born our seven core values, which are participation and immersion in the artistic process, personal growth and global healing, awaken aware consciousness, social and environmental responsibility, communal reciprocity, family fun and creative play, and transparency. Those are the seven. And so that kind of is like, that's our compass, right? It's our, it's sort of the, the rubric that we put all of our projects up against. And we ask the question, is this in alignment with our values or not? And it's really interesting because some things that we want to do, they're in alignment with three of the values, but maybe like questionable on one of them. And so we have a conversation of like, is it worth doing this thing because it's in alignment with three of our values, but it's like questionable on one of them? And it serves as a conversation and it helps us make decisions. You know, it's interesting, the festivals that I have attended that seem to have the most robust community participation all have a set of values. So Burning Man has 10 principles. Bonnaroo, which otherwise feels like a commercial festival in many ways, it has the Bonnarooian code. Shambhala in Canada is another one that's sort of like guided by its principles. And I think that what can happen as part of the transformative process of a festival is and we're talking in this case specifically with camping festivals. So you're you're going into a container for a period of time, and that container functions by certain rules or agreements, and you get to experience what your being and what your collaborative experience of other beings is within the container governed by those agreements. Burning Man is the most specific example of that because Burning Man's principles are so specific. Mm-hmm. And the kind of flat, sort of like virtual reality landscape of the Black Rock Desert also lends itself to like, I'm in a prototyping zone. I'm here to experiment. And so I'm not surprised, although I actually didn't know, but I'm I'm not surprised that lucidity is governed by principles. It seems to make a lot of sense. And the other thing that you pointed to that makes a lot of sense in terms of community is, is it came out of existing communities in Santa Barbara, which I think is another way that festivals can create this kind of transformative quality. Because people be like, how are festivals transformative? It's like, well, there's actually ingredients. Like, I don't necessarily consider... Lollapalooza to by its very structure to be transformed. doesn't mean that transformation doesn't happen. Of course it does. And it doesn't mean it doesn't have interactive art that may have participatory qualities that are meaningful. But there's something about a community-run, value-driven, temporary autonomous zone that changes people. Yeah, no doubt. Our first year, we talked a little bit before we turned the mics on, we talked about the Bloom series because the Bloom series was that docu-series that looked at transformational festivals. And prior to the Bloom series, the director of the Bloom series had a TED Talk that was called A Journey Through Transformational Festivals. And that came out right in the year that we were like formulating lucidity. And so we were very inspired by and influenced by this idea of transformational festival. And so becoming a student of transformation was 
part of the journey for us. And so looking at theories about expansion of consciousness, looking at theories of developmental psychology, you mentioned Alan Watts, like it's a huge influencer for some of us. And the domain of transpersonal psychology and the hero's journey, these are all pieces and parts of what has gone into our cultivation of a container that is supportive of transformation is first being students of what that process looks like at a psychological and philosophical process and then integrating that into our storytelling. Yeah, it's been part of what we've been up to. Yeah, we'll crack open some of those boxes. But quick question about that. So it's an iterative process of festival. You know, every year you get to try it again. And I love that about festivals. Do you have a kind of feedback process by which you're able to gauge like how transformational is this container that I'm making <laughs> and transforming into what? Are you able to look at from year to year watching a community mature, maybe watching people in your life go through transformative processes. But how do you know, like let's say that Lucidity Festival is a kind of technology and that technology does a thing. It creates a more integrated human, for example, or it creates someone who is, maybe just make it simpler than that, it creates someone who is more is happier and is flourishing and is more interconnected in a nourishing way with community. That's a potential goal of a technology of a transformational festival, right? Can you test that? Do you know that it's working? Because I think one of the challenges is it's like this is a very poetic way of looking at an experience, but what does it mean over the long term in a person's life? Yeah, I mean, there are ways to test it, and some of them are, you know, bear fruit better than others. We do things like participant surveys afterwards that go through our email list and stuff like that. And but a lot of the stuff that we get is stuff like the porta potties by the nomads nook ran out of toilet paper, you know, and it's like, okay, well, that's helpful. But in terms of like really the transformative aspect, those anecdotes and testimonials come forward in a more organic way over the, or they have come forward over the trajectory of um, what we've been creating. We have people step forward and say, oh my God, lucidity changed my life. I came three years ago. I had this experience. I was in a breathwork workshop and I had this experience where I realized this thing and my life has changed and now I'm, I'm in alignment with my calling and thank you because it was here that I had that realization. You know, there's stories that like that that come forward pretty regularly and that type of feedback is I think it speaks to what you're asking about. We don't necessarily have the mechanisms to like capture that because when we try to capture that, we get more sort of like logistical feedback. But the stories do come forward. And when they come forward organically, they're usually they feel more authentic anyway. So I guess that's one way to test. I think a lot of projects born out of Burning Man have a similar kind of vibe because Burning Man is the most like 
clear version of that of anywhere that I've been. Boom Festival as well as mm. kind of, you know, some of the Psytrance stuff has a similar kind of energy. Some of the bigger festivals that came out of that kind of Psytrance explosion in the late 90s. But Burning Man really has it. And it's like, you know it, you and you know it's happening. And, I, and one thing that I want to get to a little bit later is like transform to what? Where are we in the world in terms of the way people's transformations, have they equipped them to better deal with an increasingly fragmented world or not? But for now, let's continue on this thread of Lucidity Festival as a technology of transformation. Because one thing that's specific about Lucidity, and this kind of ties back to in the question that I asked about what makes Lucidity different. So this will be part of that question too. A lot of questions all at once. <laughs> all um, these questions. All of them. All of, well, all Great these questions, questions. Literally my whole job. So Lucidity is a saga. You know, Some festivals are iterative in the sense that it's like, let's just see what it's like this year. I mean, even Burning Man, it, like, it takes a theme give it a try. With Lucidity, it's more intentional. It's moving through narrative chapters. And you wrote something in 2017, The Philosophical and Psychological Underpinnings of the Lucidity Saga. And I'd like to crack open that concept. And what you wrote in that is, our intention with telling a multi-year story in which each festival year is a chapter in a larger meta-narrative arc, is to provide a container within which participants and festival goers can be the hero or heroine in their own real life and fantastical journey. Why do you need a multi-year arc in order to accomplish the experience of festival goers being a hero or heroine in their own fantastical journey? Well, I think that there's something about experiencing full cycles that is important. If we look at some of the most celebrated epic stories that have been told, like The Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, they're organized into trilogies. And there's something about experiencing a full cycle of a year and returning back to a same place in a year and having the full ritual cycle of a year to plan for a next year that I think is important in terms of grounding us in the experience of what it is to be human and to live in a place where we go around the sun in 365 days. You know, our whole experience and existence is organized into cycles. And so to have just a three day experience be the container to inspire transformation, it doesn't feel like it's enough. It feels like it's too fleeting. And there are ways that you can hold that container for three days that are powerful, but it's even more powerful when you connect that to the rest of your life. And you connect that to the touch point of coming back to the same place a year later and a year later and a year later. That I feel like is is really important. And this whole concept of organizing into trilogies, like the power of the number of three, it shows up everywhere. And um, you know, in the hero's journey, you have basically the three main phases of separation, initiation, and return. And so, yeah, organizing into trilogies is an important just sort of initial idea. Um, we were also inspired by an artist in Santa Barbara her name's Jill Littlewood, and she's all about the experience of time passing 
within our artwork. And like whenever we would have an event and it was we wanted to produce it in like two weeks, she'd always be like, no, we need longer time horizon. And the things that we make for that event, we should be thinking about how we're going to continue to use those things that we make for that event in future things. Like think with larger time horizons than just the short and immediate and see what unfolds from that. It's been very influential for us with Lucidity because we are thinking in, at first we thought in a six-year story arc, and then when we came to year six, we realized that we had only told half the story, so we needed another six years. But like thinking in a a 12-year story arc and thinking in terms of 12 years, it's first of all a big commitment, but it requires stepping back. It requires like a, a bigger vision. It requires a wider lens. And yeah, there's something about it that is just seems important. So this will be my 12th year at Burning Man. And Burning Man is my annual pilgrimage. And what's happened for me is I've kind of patterned my life to that Burning Man is the end of a year in a sense. And I'm quite seasonal in the way that my system operates. So like in the spring, like this time of year, I'm like lots of energy, new projects, everything's great. Over the summer, very social, very connected, travel, that sort of thing. Burning Man ends that for me. And then I go into the quieter fall time, letting go, and then into the incubation time of the winter to blossom again. So yeah, super seasonal as a being. And festivals have always held this place for humankind. We've been doing rites and rituals and feast days and that sort of thing on an annual cycle. I am a student of ancient festivals as well as modern ones. And you've really hit the nail on the head with these cycles and then these trilogies. So where are we at with the Lucidity trilogy? You started in 2012. Mm-hmm. The years off, I'm assuming, don't don't count. So yeah. what, what year of your cycle of 12 are you right now? We are stepping into uh, chapter nine. Chapter nine. Yeah. So it's the end of the third trilogy. Okay. And the four trilogies have an organizing principle. They're based off of four stages of the exp- expansion of consciousness. That's the Ken Wilber stuff? Uh, yeah. Ken Wilber was influential for me because he was like looking, he's such a great synthesizer. He takes a, a bunch of different theories and he says, this is what they're all saying. And um, so he is looking at the, the field of developmental psychology and he's saying all these d- different developmental psychologists talk about the different stages of development that uh, a human will go through in their expansion of consciousness. And some people talk about seven stages and other people talk about 12 stages and we could really boil it down to four. And it's egocentrism, which is all about the me, that expands to ethnocentrism and the we, which can expand to world centrism, which is all of us, that then expands to universal consciousness, which is all that is. And something that I really like about this concept, as I understand it, the idea of integration, where when you're moving through these spirals, there are greater stages of complexity. And when you are ascending through this spiral, you believe that you are at the top level at every level (laughs) until you get to a certain level where you realize that all levels are true at once. Mm -hmm. And that to me, that's like the like aha moment which is you know 
there's al- there's almost like a judgment that has been happening of these even to call them sort of lower levels on a spiral, like, well, I've transcended that. And I think that we get that in kind of like spiritual growth and the healing path and that sort of thing is, is it's like, well, I'm better now than, you know, now I'm taking medicines, not drugs. And now I'm having polyamorous relationships with goddesses as opposed to like trying to like score babes at, at a club or whatever. The but spiritual ego. Yeah, the, the spiritual, yeah, but there's a spiritual ego that thinks that you've somehow, you're somehow at the top of the mountain until the actual top of the mountain I guess as much as there is a top of the mountain, maybe we haven't gotten there yet, but as much as there is a top of the mountain, it's actually an integration of all that's come before. Mm. And that's the fourth stage. Is that is that the same as your as your view of this? Sure. I I, I don't disagree with um anything that you just said. In the path of the expansion of consciousness from the me into these concentric circles of of greater awareness, which is allowance of more perspective. I think that there is ultimately an experience of non-dualism or unity consciousness where, and I've experienced it in, in moments, right? But the mystics talk about resting in that place. And I don't doubt that there are some that have achieved that, which is resting in that place of unity consciousness of just all is you know the all is one thing it's like it's super cliche and it's been sort of taken in a way that i think rubs people the wrong way like all is one especially within like social justice circles because there's the spirit more spiritual than thou of like oh we are the same all is one and when you speak that to a person that is confronted regularly with polarity and the socioeconomic difference it's really hard to be like yeah cool all is one that's a super privileged perspective and so i say all of this with that awareness of like all is one is super cliche and at the same time i feel like the traditions that have been on this planet for thousands of years that speak to the 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 unity consciousness as maybe a possible place to reach for <laughs> they're worthwhile they're they're worth being inspired by they're worth they're they're worth doing the work for i think as as with everything it's a both and you know yeah. that kind of oceanic oneness that we can touch upon in certain psychedelic experiences or certain experiences of collective effervescence like at a festival like those are real and they matter and they're valuable it's when the spiritual ego spiritual bypassing process of taking that and then trying to pour that ocean into the small vessel of one's individual ego and saying we are all one therefore i am divine and I'm now manifesting my life according to my desire, that gets very privilegy very fast. And the depoliticized nature of it is really unfair um, because maybe you manifested it, maybe it's privilege. You know? That's <laughs> uh that. yeah. And and so I and but it that doesn't mean that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I, I think that for me, my my really deep touch on oceanic oneness was in an early ayahuasca ceremony, and I will always hold with me the the deep faith that I am part of something bigger, and that actually is helpful for me in 
not holding my ego so tightly because I'm like, I'm just like an amen. I'm the divine experiencing an amen. So like whatever the amen thing is doing, it's not that big of a deal. And then concurrently, I have an obligation to humanity because we all do, because we're in a very strange, very unfair caste system and we have an obligation to that. So I think that something that is important in festival culture because festival culture is a lot about both the touching of that oneness and also the idea of like my tribe, those who go to the festivals I go to because it feels really good to be in community in that way. But both of those things are so good and if they're depoliticized completely, if we're not aware of these broader macro processes in the world, then we're part of the problem. So from that perspective, and I do want to get back in a moment to the lucidity chapters, but how does lucidity hold that particular challenge? Yeah. Well, ways that we've held it in the past has been to create spaces for difficult conversations. And we literally one year had a space for difficult conversations was the name of the the, the zone where you know we grapple with and have conversations around social justice issues around race around gender and we also have been cultivating a, a project called the Council for Peace which is our indigenous wisdom keepers from multiple traditions that come to lucidity and hold council we have a really good relationship with the first people of the land of the Santa Inez Valley, the Chumash, and our good friend Carmen. She comes and we do a land walkthrough before we even step foot onto the land to produce the festival. We do a walkthrough with her where we ask permission of the land, of the plants, of the animals, and of the ancestors of the place. So, you know, we're starting there of like being in good relationship with first people, with the spirits of place. And then creating space on the festival grounds, but also in our social media spaces to have difficult conversations. And yeah, that's one of the ways that we grapple with that. Like, we're always looking at how we're doing things and if we are walking our talk, also. And sometimes we're not. And sometimes light needs to be shined on things that we're doing that need refinement or need adjustment or need to be made more inclusive. So being open to that feedback from our audience is a really important thing. I, I see how the process so easily, like feedback comes in about how we're not walking our talk and there is urge towards defensiveness but then as soon as that defensiveness breaks down and there's a listening and a facilitated conversation, new opportunities emerge and then the refinement happens. And then I just feel like that process is the process of right relation and community building. And so I'm a fan of and a lifelong student of that process. Mm. Oh, I love that. Which of Lucidity's principles do you feel like that most ties to uh, social responsibility, social and environmental responsibility. You know, there's mm -hmm. always the conversation about environmental footprint and uh, bamboo silverware. 
Yep. <laughs> it's always about bamboo silverware. That's how we're going to solve it. Yep. Make it out of bamboo. Bamboo straws. Bamboo straws. Yep. Okay, let's get back to the stages of development and the chapters of lucidity. So you're in this coming year's number nine. Yep. And that's the final of the third stage. So that's the world-centric view yep. before you step into the next three. And the three of this chapter, as I recall, has been Earth, Sun, Moon. Is that right? It was Sun, Moon, Earth. Sun, Moon, Earth. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so you did the Sun, you did the Moon, you took a break, and now this year is Earth. Yeah. So to get back into the idea of a festival as a technology, how will lucidity hold the transformative quality of the final chapter of the world-centric view? Like what what does that mean? Is it about the narratives in the media? Is it about interactive performances at the festival? How, how are you actually doing it? Uh, so the, the chapter nine is called Regeneration Earth. And so uh, one of the things that we're doing prior to the festival this year, in the past we've done Lucid University Course Week where people come a few days before the festival and we have three-day deep dive classes. This year, rather than doing like three-day classes in a bunch of different topics, we're just doing a one-day regenerative action day. And so people can come. Uh, we've got Lauren Leindyke, who's a local permaculturist and arborist, and he's going to be giving a little bit of education in the morning, and then there's going to be a hands-on give-back afternoon. Uh, we'll probably be doing some tree planting there have been a lot of trees planted on the festival grounds over the last year. And so looking at how to how to fertilize and treat those trees well so that they have the best chance of surviving and looking at potentially a few other projects that Lauren has in mind that I don't quite know yet. You know, it's like a get your hands in the dirt, be active, and then give back to the land that's given us so much over the last 10 years. So that's one way. Fourth. And that's April 6th. That's the 6th, yes. Wednesday before uh, before the festival weekend. When we talk about how the theme shows up at the festival, that gets into the domain of like our art curator and our workshop curator and our music curator. And I have my hands in those things very peripherally, but I'm our marketing director. And so the honest answer to like how does the story show up on the festival grounds in a given year for me as the marketing director is pretty skewed because I'm looking at storytelling for the next year. So I'm like always a chapter ahead in my head and in the media that we're seeking to create. And so it's interesting, you know, once we get onto the festival grounds as a participant, we're experiencing what's been sort of conceptualized and crafted and the call that's been put out that began the year prior. And so I've been really in a space right now of looking at uh, the first chapter of the final trilogy, which is called The Great Synthesis. And so, yeah, my head has been way more in The Great Synthesis recently than it has been in Regeneration Earth. I feel like the chapter of Regeneration Earth, it's definitely been poetic. Like we wrote this chapter 
Regeneration Earth, and we were two weeks away from being on site in 2020, and COVID happened, and we got shut down, and so we didn't go produce our festival. And the site got to regenerate for two years, didn't have people trampling all over it. And in that time, the county planted hundreds of trees, and there's been a lot of work and energy towards the actual regeneration of that site. And that speaks to the really interesting thing that we've noticed throughout the telling of this story is that every chapter year, something big happens that is totally in alignment with the story that we're telling. Like the year that we were stepping into Moon's Eye View, which was going to be all about water, we got the most rainfall that we've gotten in like 10 years. And it was like our reservoir, which is right next to Live Oak, that had been at like 18% capacity, got almost filled back up again. And there was a lot of like concern about what happens when that reservoir gets emptied. The, like the drought in California is always like forward in our consciousness. And that year we got tons of rain. And it was the year that was all about water. And the year prior that was all about fire, we saw the Thomas fire come through Santa Barbara, which was like, at the time, the biggest fire in California history. Now every year is the biggest fire in California history, right. it seems. Yeah. <laughs> but so one of the things that we have come to a place of realization around is that the story that's being told through lucidity, it's less us as the storytellers telling a story, and it's more of the story that wants to be told through us. Oh man, now that ties us right back into the lucid dream, right? I mean, if as a festival producer, if you are allowing the story to be told through you, that seems analogous to being the dreamer who is letting the dream unfold even in the awareness that it's a dream. Had you ever thought about that before? Or am I the first person to bring it up? Uh, you got it, you got it, you got it, yeah. It's good. Yeah, life is a festival. You heard it here first. It's <laughs> all a lucid dream. So your head is in the next episode, and there's only three more. So does that mean, will lucidity conclude as an experience in, I guess that's 2025? I don't know that we know. There has been discussion of, I guess it's not really spoiler alert, um, there's been discussion of the possibility that upon the conclusion of the 12th chapter that it starts back over at the beginning and we see the chapters play out again. Same chapters? Maybe. Okay. Hollywood's doing the reboot all yeah, the time. Everything's a reboot. It's people, all reboot. People come back for the reboot. So yeah. like, that's been one idea that's been tossed around. Another idea that's been tossed around is, yeah, it's over. And that is the story that we told. And then we can continue to, to tell the story in other ways. And we have dreams of a graphic novel and a Netflix series and more immersive, participatory storytelling experiences that build off of the lucidity mythos, but that aren't necessarily like going through the 12-year story again. So it's, uh, it's up in the air. We really don't know. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the non-festival aspects of lucidity. Y'all have been ahead of the curve on some of the things that festivals have 
decided to work with. For example, that week-long school that you were doing, Lucid University. Did you all buy land? We did. We participated in the co-purchase of a piece of property in Southern Oregon called Trillium. And um, that was a whole interesting chapter. <laughs> okay. I'm, it sounds like maybe we don't open that particular box well, today. I, I mean, if you want to open it, we can. But, you know, what's the Reader's Digest sort of takeaway of that? It was in alignment with the year that was um, Eudaimonia. And Eudaimonia, as a chapter, it was year six, is about human flourishing and sort of like optimizing of human potential. And our concept art that year very much showed like a community living in the hills with the lucid city in the in the background. And it was very much sort of like a optimistic utopian vision. And so the co-purchase of a piece of land happened in that year. And I think that we went in with a very optimistic view and we learned that humans, when it comes to home and co-owning property, uh, there's a lot of things that come up. And uh, the social dynamics of the the crew of 13 people that we co-purchased property um, with, the social dynamics were too challenging for us to make it work long term. And after a year of being on that property together, the community fractured into two camps and the camp that was more financially endowed bought out the camp that was less so and we went separate ways and... Um, and that was the end of that chapter. <laughs> well, that's part of having chapters. You know, yeah. you iterate and see what works. Yep. And you are iterating something new. You have you are stepping into a new chapter. Tell me why you've decided to create an NFT adventure. Give me the why and then we'll talk about the how. Cool. So the why is the the similar why as we've been talking about to create incredible experience for people to create immersive storytelling worlds that are built off of archetypal aspects of who we are as humans that get us more in touch with the human condition and the human experience. That's the why. Like Our project, whereas a bunch of other projects that I see in the NFT space are like delving people into virtual worlds and creating metaverses and so many of them are about like video games and crypto hype. The big idea of our project, the Lucid Multiverse, is to actually get people out into the, the real world, to travel to amazing places on the planet, to go to festivals in real life, to meet new friends, to make art, and to do some treasure hunting along the way, both literal and figurative, and really to live the life of their dreams. So there's ARG, alternative reality game approach to this project that is using our mythos as the backdrop and the sort of immersive storytelling thrust 
um, using the spirit animals from the first six years of lucidity and the elemental realms from the last three years of lucidity and the deja vu symbols from this little spinoff event that we did in 2017 called Deja Vu, which was a live action role-playing mystery theater campout. And we're weaving these things together in a great synthesis to deliver just an awesome gamified immersive storytelling experience. And we're using the, the technology of NFTs as the game pieces, as the framework, as the way to bring value into the experience. Because to, to, to create these experiences, it's, it's production. There are expenses involved. And in the past, sometimes it's been hard to find the funding to do these types of things. We've used the festival as our main mechanism, and so selling festival tickets becomes the funding to create the immersive storytelling experience. I brought you a gift of our Lucidity Mythos Oracle deck. This is another sort of vehicle that was created to communicate the Lucidity Mythos to a wider audience in the form of a tangible Oracle deck. As you are speaking, I'm going to open this oracle deck you've given me, and I'm going to choose a card. So keep telling the story, and I'm going to jump into the mythos myself. Beautiful. Um, as soon as I get this wrapper off. <laughs> Immersive storytelling at its best. So yeah, so why NFTs? As an organization that is interested in, in participation and immersion in the artistic process, it's hard in this right now moment to ignore NFTs as a phenomenon in the art world. I heard a stat recently that in 2021, fine art sales across the world over the course of the year were like 50 billion and digital art sales were like 44 billion. So like digital art sales are almost eclipsing real life art sales on the per annuum. And so maybe in 2022, they might overtake. And so it would be hard for us to ignore the phenomenon. And so rather than what I'm seeing some people do, which is look at it from an arm's length and judge it and criticize it, I've decided to just dive in. And I had a total deep dive for like two months in November and December just trying to wrap my head around what is NFT, <laughs> non-fungible tokens, and like what is the the ecosystem of like there's totally different social media ecosystem. It's Twitter and Discord and TikTok. You know, it's like different than what Lucidity grew up in, which is Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And so what are these ecosystems, what are these spaces, and what are the conversations that are being had and what are the projects that are emerging? and what's possible with the technology. And so, yeah, we're hoping to be a pioneer in the space of creating an ARG that is using NFTs to be the, the game pieces, basically, yeah. I'm going to pull my card now. Yes, what is it? Did you ask a question? No. Okay. Am I supposed to ask it a question? Well, you can, or we can just accept what's... Well, I'm, I'm happy with what I got, because I got... Space whale. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. I kissed a beautiful woman underneath a glowing space whale at Burning Man once. So the space whale. What do you see in that card? The artist here is Della. What do I see in the card? Well, what I really like in the space whale. So first of all, love a whale. I mean, of the of of different animals, like a whale's like a 
a whale of an animal. And this particular whale on this card is bedazzled with a, a lot of these kind of like gems and this sort of like kind of constellation of stars while also being underwater as well. And then, and then there's an interpretation guide, so I'm going to... I feel like space whale to me has a lot to do with dreaming. Like mm-hmm. I, it feels like mm-hmm. a dreaming situation. Like mm-hmm. whales feel like great dreamers. Mm-hmm. So let me see what the space whale says. Hopefully, here. you have good eyes because that is small writing. It's all right. That's of the things that are going as I age. <laughs> the eyes seem to be fine. The space whale is a cosmic traveler of gigantic proportions. Traversing the deep chasm of space, much like their earthly cousins dive the ocean's deep, the space whale represents a fearless, almost methodical exploration of the subconscious. If there is something hidden deep in your psyche that has not been brought into the light of your lucid awareness, you may find that the space whale can help you retrieve it. If you've pulled this card, you may have a mission for the space whale. It might seem silly, but just ask for assistance. And see what happens. Ooh, I feel like I feel like there's like four different threads from our conversation that this space whale is connected to. You know, asking for assistance and and bringing subconscious into lucid awareness, which is so much part of the transpersonal journey as well. And I also just like love the cosmic traveler because. Yeah. I am a consummate traveler myself, and we are all cosmic orphans here. So this cosmic traveler of gigantic proportions traversing the deep chasms of space. Well, Uh. the the serendipity is strong with this deck. Yeah. It's always provided incredible magic. And the timing of you pulling that card as we're talking about the NFT project is also serendipitous because the space whale is one of the eight spirit animals that is represented in our collection of NFTs. Wait, so did I just win a prize? <laughs> you may have. <laughs> well, but this is not an NFT. This is a real space that is, whale that, that I hold in whale. my actual hand. Yeah. But the NFTs are basically like a, a digital version of a mythos deck. And there are there are going to be 888 NFTs in the collection. And we've got eight animals that show up on five different elemental uh, realm backdrops, earth, air, uh, fire, water, spirit. And then they're paired with 11 deja vu symbols. And then there's also rare items that show up. And so if you multiply the eight by five by 11, you get 440. We double that. So every NFT has a mythos twin. And there will be rewards for people who actually meet their mythos twin in real life and show us proof of that. So we're really like encouraging and incentivizing people meeting new friends. And then, so that will be 880. And then there are eight legendary versions of every animal. And that brings us to 888. And so that's our full collection. And it is in a way, a digital deck of playing cards. And the different symbols, the different realms, the different animals, they're all going to have slightly different functions within the game that we play. And the game, the sort of foundational aspect of the game are going to be these kindred quests. And kindred quest, if you remember, was chapter four of our story. And the concept of kindred quest, this is a little bit of an aside, but the concept of kindred quest is sort of like, What's after the hero's journey? 
right? The hero's journey is so individualized and about the transformation of the individual, usually male, unfortunately. And so we've always sought when we talk about the hero's journey to also talk about the heroine's journey. And then beyond that, talk about the kindred's kindred quest, which is, okay, you've gone on your hero's journey. You come back to the community and you look around and you realize that there's other people like you who have been on similar quests. And now together, how do you move forward and transform the collective? And so that's the, the, the concept of the kindred quest. And so we're calling our scavenger hunts kindred quests because NFT holders are going to have to clan up with other NFT holders and create teams. And then in those teams, compete against other teams to solve these scavenger hunts, which are going to be things that traverse online spaces. They're going to be real world challenges out in the world. And there's going to be a series of tasks and riddles that need to be solved or completed. And the team that completes the Kindred Quest first and basically wins is going to win an all-expense-paid uh, trip to a magical place on planet Earth where the treasure hunt continues. So it's going to be sort of like immersive storytelling meets travel. And over the life of the project, we envision eight of these kindred quests. I mean, this is based off of the idea that, and now we're going to get into some of the mythos of that is sort of around this project, is that the Lucid City stands at the center of all existence, all dimensions, all spaces, and all time. And the Lucid City is held up by the sweet, conscious, lucid dreams of the dreamers from across the lucid multiverse. But in recent years, a fog has crept in, and the fog has encircled the lucid city. And the rainbow roads, what we call the auroras, that the dreamers from across the lucid multiverse have used to traverse the many realms and to travel to the lucid city and back those rainbow roads are being blockaded by the fog, by nightmares and shades and haunts. And so the spirit animal guardians of the lucid multiverse in their wisdom hid the eight great keys to the lucid city across the lucid multiverse because they realized how dangerous the fog was. And now they're calling upon you and you and you, Lucid Dreamer, to come together to meet your kindred clan and to engage in these series of kindred quests to recover the eight great keys to reopen the doors of the Lucid City. And so, yeah, that's the game that we're going to be playing with people. I love it. Is it live? Are people playing? When does it? No, it... it's it's not launched yet. We have released the concept. So lucidmultiverse.com is where all of this exists right now and our Discord channel um, that you can access through lucidmultiverse.com. Uh, we're in a process of community building on the Discord and preparing for our mint. Our mint day is within two weeks of this this moment. And the mint day is when basically people go in and they purchase their NFT. But the way that we're minting is in a 
candy machine type of way where you don't see the NFT that you get. You just purchase a mint. And then once the collection is all sold, then there's a reveal. And you then you see the NFT that you get. So there's some cool aspects written in there. Like one in three NFTs will have a golden ticket that will work as entrance to Lucidity Festival. There are eight super rare treasure chests that'll be on NFTs. And those treasure chests get residual soul airdropped to them twice a year based off of a, a portion of the royalties of the secondary sales. So it's the self-generating residual income type of thing for eight lucky people who get treasure chest NFTs. And then there's also an art grant program that we're going to fund art and the community of NFT holders will de decide which art application gets funded and some other some other utility. The, all this stuff that I'm talking about, the Kindred Quest, the festival tickets, the art grant, this is all within the realm of utility. And that's one of the th ways that I feel like our NFT project sets itself apart is that it's really all of our utility is about real world utility. Getting people out into the world, travel, going to festivals, making art, meeting new friends. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. So can we drop this podcast on Mint Day? Can we like organize that so that that's how that goes? Sure. All right, so let's try to do that. And then when the listener is listening in this very moment, dear listener, as you listen, you can just head over and get yourself an NFT right now. Yeah, right now. It's right going now. on right in, now. It's happening right now <laughs> in the future, our future, but not your future because you're listening to it right now. We're in the past. But yeah, let's let's line that up because I'd love for people, if people have been like on the edge of their seat, like, this is great. I want to be involved in it. I don't want them to have to wait. Yeah, totally. Why wait? You yeah. can do it right now. That's a good idea. Um, I'm reminded of the Spaceballs moment where they're like, everything that you're seeing now is happening now. What happened to then? We passed then. When? Just now. Just now. When will then be now? Soon. Soon. And Lucidity uh, Chapter 9 is soon. It's yes. April uh, 8th to 10th, and that Regeneration Day is on the 6th. Yes. Live Oak Campground outside of Santa Barbara, which yes. I have been to. I have gone to Lucidity. It's a lovely festival. And you have starred in our Crossroads to Eudaimonia video, which is the video that has received the most views of any video. Well, why why do you think that is? Why Lucidity do you think that history. is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that was back in the Fest 300 days when I was the festival ambassador. And that was a, was a slightly, slightly younger man. So coming up in April... So we have this lucid multiverse. We'll have all the details of that in the show notes. Is there anything else that you want to point our listeners to at this moment? Uh, there is something that I'd like to point you to, which is Ooh. if you'd like to come to Lucidity, I got a ticket for you. Oh, do do I get an NFT too? I don't. <laughs> I need a. Do I need a special wallet? For my um, NFT? you do need a special wallet. You I'm need so a Solana old. wallet. A yeah. Solana wallet. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This is an important talking point, right? Because one of the criticisms of NFTs that you hear a lot, there's a lot of press around it, is that NFTs are terrible for the environment, and they use a ton of energy, and it's it's a total waste of energy, and most of those conversations and that press is directed at Ethereum, which is the, the leading cryptocurrency that NFTs are built on. 
And Ethereum transactions are incredibly uh, energy intensive. But Solana is a totally different blockchain. It's a totally different technology. And there's a totally different crypto associated with it. And Solana uses like an eensy, weensy, teensy fraction of the amount of energy that Ethereum does. It's like turning a light bulb on. And so, whereas Ethereum is like driving an SUV across a big city, every transaction, just to compare those two things. So that, yeah, that does seem not in alignment with the values of lucidity. Totally. And so that's why we chose Solana, because Solana is really, it's solving for those environmental concerns, and it's created eco-friendly blockchain technology that does similar things, but is less energy intensive. And for the user, it's way more attractive because gas fees with Ethereum, like you pay what you need to pay in Ethereum and then you got to pay a gas fee. That's basically like your transaction fee. And gas, it changes minute to minute, but it can be anywhere from 10 bucks to like 150 bucks just to pay for the transaction. Whereas within Solana, you're paying like a fraction of a cent for every transaction. So it's like negligible. Wow, I am not up to date on cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it's all good. I, <laughs> I mean, wasn't either until I until you dove took the deep, deep dive. in this project. Yeah. This is the first time we've talked about it on the show. Well, so first of all, thank you so much for the offer of the ticket. I'm actually it's my it's my birthday, and I will be in Ibiza. So unfortunately, I won't be able to attend. But I do encourage our listeners to attend. I have been before. And it's a beautiful festival, and it's a beautiful community, and it's very it's a very rich festival creatively. I love all the mythological perspectives we've talked about. As as you have said, it's more than a festival, and in being more than a festival, it's one of the festivals that shows what festivals can be, which is more than a festival. Uh, and really, Jonah, it's the perfect festival to kick back up festival season, and for this show. You know, because as as this program is a lot about the philosophy of life mm. through the lens of festival culture and and sort of auxiliary communities. So, you know, having you on the show is a great opportunity to kick off more conversations about festivals as they are returning. And what a beautiful festival to start on, and what a beautiful perspective for our listeners to have when approaching any sort of annual pilgrimage they wish to take. So I really appreciate you coming on the program. Yeah, well, I'm honored to fill that space of the kicking it back off, getting back into the swing of festival culture as we remember it, but also like festival culture as it's uh, emerging and transforming and reinventing itself. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a year for reinventing ourselves, absolutely. And um, just to f- the final piece here, we're going to have all this in the show notes, but we have the Lucid Multiverse. We have Lucidity's social platforms. I mean, it's pretty straightforward where you can go to all the stuff you need for Lucidity for buying tickets. What about you? Do you have an online presence that you like people to check out? I mean, yeah, my uh, Instagram is at lucidjonah. Okay. Um, I'm not super active on it, but you know, you can get a little glimpse into sort of 
the different things that I'm up to. I like to post about my spear fishing adventures and my lobster lobster diving adventures. Oh, nice. and spear spear fishing space whales. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll call this. I'll call this podcast spear fishing space whales, and people will be like, "What does that even mean?" <laughs> well, if you'd like to see spear fishing and lobster diving and everything Jonas up to, you can check that out and. Please follow Lucidity for more unfolding of mythopoetic adventures, which you can take a part in and co-create. Thanks for coming on the show, my friend. It's great to see you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.